Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. The date is Sunday, it is the 28th of the 8th, meaning we are nearly into the blessed month of September. Michael, how have you been? I'm fine, Gary. I went for a swim today, so I'm feeling all invigorated and healthy. So we may as well, I suppose, get right into it. The thing I wanted to, to start talking about, Michael, today is not to take you know a sort of victory lap with the news that um, your your energy prices or consumer energy prices are about to skyrocket, which is something we have been saying for quite some time. Um, also, because it would be petty and insensitive, Michael, to take any sort of victory lap about such a such an issue. Especially because you know, just because we're right, Gary, doesn't mean that they actually give us a special bonus where the price of our electricity our diesel, our coal and our gas doesn't go up. It will go up with everybody's... Yeah, yeah. You see? You see? We were right. We were right. Oh, shit. We were right. (laughs) That's a lot of money. But I wanted to touch first on this hate report that came out that the Irish Times and the Independent uh, published on and the Irish Independent subsequently deleted. So for those who haven't seen it, there is an American group which decided they were going to publish a report... Well, they said report, it's actually a single web page um, consisting of three to four hundred words of an introduction, which is entirely unsupported allegations and then organizational bios of 12 groups that they don't like. Um, They published this. It looks like they put a press release out. I'm not sure how it got into the Irish newspapers, but it was published by both The Independent and The Times. The Independent subsequently deleted it, presumably because their legal department saw it and had just a conniption. Whereas The Irish Times still have it up. And there's a couple of things to talk about in relation to this report. I mean, firstly, we've seen an increased tendency amongst particularly sort of the progressive left to use terms like far right to basically delegitimize opposition voices. And I think that is certainly an element in what happened here. But I think the real reason we need to go into it, Michael, is because I am nearly certain people are going to get sued for this one. Before we've seen things like this, and they've kind of hedged their bets or they've stayed to one or two groups that whatever one might think of them and whether or not they are far right, you could be fairly certain that they didn't have the resources to bring a defamation case against you, at least not easily. Yeah, That's not the case with this report. This report talks about a couple of organizations that definitely have the re- uh, resources to do it. But also it names certain individuals as being involved in those groups. One of those individuals I happen to know and... That person, who I have an incredible amount of time for and think incredibly highly of, is the most unapologetically litigious person I know and has the resources to make this very painful. And there's a comedy um, sketch, Michael, by a group called The Whitest Kids You Know, and it's uh, Abraham Lincoln and his assassination. And their telling of it is that Abraham Lincoln is just a loud, boorish man who just screams obscenities at the actors. And eventually someone in the audience tells him to shut up And Abraham Lincoln looks at the man and for the space of about two minutes just repeatedly screams at him, you have fucked up. Now you have fucked up. And that was kind of the feeling I had when I saw some of those names. You don't know what you've done. And so, which by the way is is why we're not going into things like the names of the groups on the list because you can find it very easily. But also uh, there will be lawsuits over this, I, I would say with near certainty. I've never read an article um, or a report 
that's so begged for a defamation case. Sorry, what I found really weird was the the choices that other groups made in their commentary on this. Groups that initially just, say, put it out without comment and then went back and kind of doubled down on it. And instead of just leaving it there as an artifact and not appearing to necessarily either endorse it or not endorse it, you know, a retweet is not necessarily endorsement kind of thing. But then actually go about, I mean, for example, one saying the far right is on the rise in Ireland. A new report identifies at least 12 far right groups. Which sounds like sounds very like somebody giving an endorsement to the idea that these are in fact these listed groups, named groups, and those invi- individuals involved are indeed far right. And the language of the of the actual, and we're calling it a report, Gary. I I, I don't really know what that means in this context. To me, this reads like an opinion piece from some kind of lefty online magazine talking about people it doesn't like in a different country, but doesn't actually really understand who or what they are. But when you look at the language, you know, it, it, it embracing beliefs and activities that demean, harass, and get this, inspire violence. Now, that's a big claim, isn't it? Yes, and in other parts of the um, of the website of this group, the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, they detail it's not just inspiring violence. Generally, it's inspiring violence in the context of terrorism, mass killings, and, Michael, they say, uh, potentially even genocide. Now, this is a... When you say about there's no report, I agree with you. When I wrote my article on this for Gripped, where I actually looked into the report... I made the argument that there is no report. What they have put up does not constitute a report because a report implies some level of scholarly or academic or even just archival work um, where the things you say can be backed up. What these people said was the far right is on the rise. These people are far right. No, we will not be taking further questions at this time. And the problem I think they have here is that they Normally when far right is used, it's used as just a kind of, those are bad people. And it's not defined by the people who are using it. These people define it. And they define it quite exactly. I mean, as they say, Michael, they say that these are groups that can commit or inspire violence. And helpfully, they have a section, Michael, on their website where they basically do a Q&A. And one of them is, must a group be violent to be added to uh, the country reports? And they say no, because, Michael... A movement or organization's ideas, propaganda, or actions may themselves be violence-inspiring. I, I, I don't think I missed the part where it actually produced evidence to show that anything that they could, or one might reasonably describe as far-right, was in fact growing in Ireland, that it had generated any kind of momentum or mass. I, I was trying to think, well, okay, let's just say... There are no members of the Oireachtas that I think anybody could even unreasonably consider to be defined as being far right. I can't think of a single, there are, oh, I think, what, 900 and, 900 odd, maybe 80 something, 984 or something, the guts of a thousand, slightly less than a thousand county councillors in Ireland. I don't, I'm not aware of any one county councillor in the country which you could be elected to be to a county, the county council with four or five hundred first preference votes, and possibly less. I mean, I I didn't go through every count of every uh, council region in the country, but I, I'm not aware of any county councillor that would fall into the bracket 
of far right in Ireland. Well, I mean, an interesting thing is this is 12 groups. And one of the groups, they themselves say that experts estimate there are less than 10 people in it. So this is the people, the people who are behind the global project against hate and extremism all come from the Southern Poverty Law Center. Now, the Southern Poverty Law Center, for those who don't know, became famous for its work against the Ku Klux Klan in uh, the kind of late uh, 20th century. And then they started eventually releasing something which was called the Year in Hate and Extremism and then the Year in Hate. And at that point, critics began to say that the group was basically trawling for individuals or kind of microgroups that it could claim were far right and could then report on because it could then use that to uh, get money. And they've made, I think they're currently sitting on about half a billion in their savings. They, they are famous for their ability to raise money off this. Originally, it was the clan. Even after the clan disappeared, they kept bigging up the clan to basically uh, keep making money off them. And the critique has always been from both the left and the right that by doing that, you are one, giving people a false idea of the far right and its actual threat, but also you are promoting these groups. You are taking groups that no one knows about, and you are making them seem incredibly effective and wide-ranging because you stand to make money from it. But it is what it is. It got, I mean, it's been uncritically covered um, by people who should know better. Like the National Women's Account, uh, National Women's Council of Ireland retweeting something like this, like directly linking to the report, and then seeming to say something um, which looked like they were endorsing the findings of the report was, I would say, Michael, probably not the best move legally. That was bizarre. I mean, genuinely, for a group like that, but also whatever about them, because they have their own ideological positions, as we know from the basis of their last election manifesto. I mean, it was a document, shall we say, not of the moderate left. But that this was just published by the newspapers. Well, it, it feels like they were just basically publishing a, a press release. And you kind of got the sense that they hadn't read it. There were a couple of people named in it who simply looked at it and went, well, factually, that's not right. That's not even close to being right. That is basically people that these people disagree with and have decided that they will smear like this. Now, the interesting thing about this, Michael, is that at the bottom of the report, there's a interesting little sentence, uh, which I think could prove to be... Uh, impactful. And it's this, we would like to thank Ireland's far-right observatory for providing input and research for this country report. Oh, And that was not a surprise to me because the far-right observatory, which is again partially funded by the Irish state, even though it's an anonymous organisation operating under the auspice of another organisation entirely, I have seen members of the far-right observatory talk about these things before. And as I was reading this webpage, I was struck that a lot of the links and a lot of the, the narrative and a lot of particularly the shoddy links where they'll be like, this thing happened, therefore this entirely other thing is supported, comes from the far-right observatory, or is at least very close to the way they would put things. So I would be interested if they wrote any of this, Michael, because if they wrote any of it, as an Irish organisation, they have far less protection uh, against defamation proceedings than an American organisation would have. And I, when I published my article, I made that point that the Far-Right Observatory is part of Uplift, which is a progressive um, surveying and, and campaigning organisation, basically, and that someone could conceivably sue Uplift. And the Far-Right Observatory being anonymous could basically disappear if there was a threat of legal action, because it's just an ad hoc network. That was true until they went into uplift and until they started getting state funding. Now, not so easy to disappear. And actually, I noticed an interesting thing in the journal there today. Um, I'm not sure if it's related, but 
I found it interesting. The journal had a um, article up about how GoFundMe has removed several what they call far right campaigns, and they say that they they were given this information by the far right observatory. That the far right observatory has put out a release on it. Now, I'm not sure why they did it today, because none of this is newsworthy. The last campaign that they have, that they're talking about, was taken uh, offline in August 2021. Here's an interesting little line from it, and this appears to have come from a a far-right observatory uh, press report. The FRO is an official organisation founded as part of the Irish Network Against Racism to monitor, analyse, inform and take action that counters far-right activity in hate in Ireland. And I find it very interesting that the FRO would put out a statement saying something like that, you know, a day or two after I made the point that they're linked to Uplift. I don't, I don't think that's correct. I don't think they were founded as part of the Irish Network Against Racism at all. INR is involved with the FRO, but it is not the legal entity under which the FRO acts. That is Uplift. And I can show that's Uplift. Like, it's public record that it's Uplift. Uh, Uplift pay the wages of the two members of staff who are uh, there in the FRO, which is a very interesting thing about the FRO, actually. It's a matter of public record that two people, a man called Mark Malone and a woman called Neve MacDonald, are paid by Uplift to lead and manage the far-right observatory. But every time I have seen them mentioned in the paper, no name has been given for their spokesperson, even though it will be one of those two people, and it's a matter of public record that they work for the group. So I don't know why they are allowed to comment anonymously when it's already known who they are. That th- that thing about the anonymous comment I, th- I thought was weird. That it, It's always a, a slightly tricky thing, isn't it, when, you, when you're relying on the anon- an anonymous source? Because let's face it, anonymous source could mean you made you could mean you made it up yourself. But what in this context, it, it, it I don't understand why you're you're going with an anonymous source when you have a record. No, I mean you know you, there are certain times when an anonymous source is all you can do. Now, usually, when you're doing investigative work, you would push for that source to put their name forward and not be anonymous because that massively strengthens the story and. A lot of the time, if someone is not willing to come forward, you won't get it over the line. Even in that case, you'd, you'd like you'd like to have it. If you're going to go with an anonymous source, you'd like to have two of them. You'd like to have one and then a confirmation. Yeah, and you would only use anonymous sources when there is a reason to do so. So yeah, where there is a record that these are the people involved. Now, there are, there are a few other people involved with this group who might make the comments and ask to be anonymous. But this is a group that it's accepting state funding. It has paid staff. A name should be attached to it statements. And it's kind of odd how willing newspapers have been to let them get away without doing that. This is just plucking names out of the air. Because they don't like something. It seems to me that it's a position of this group, that if you're pro-life, that being pro-life is a priori, axiomatically, an indicator of being far right. It's difficult to say. Because they don't, much like the SPLC, they don't release the actual methodology through which they determine that a group is, well, they don't even say hate group. What Their exact description of what these groups were was far-right hate and extremist groups. Like, you have stuff on here like the the LGB Alliance. Now, I've met and talked to some of the people involved in the LGB Alliance. I interviewed uh, one of its founders, actually, I think, on this show a year or so ago, uh, Bev Jackson. All of the members of that group I've talked to are old school, like, 1970, you know, second wave feminist socialists. Oh, they're lefties. Old-fashioned lefties. That's something which is so insubstantial and such 
on the face of it, such nonsense and so thin. I mean, there's a group on this which is listed, which, Gary, I talked to people who would know people who would know people who would be on the tangent, and they said, this is a group that you could happily fit into a small minibus in the whole of the country, and yet it's they're bigging this up as some kind of a, a real threat. It's just that they, that it's getting the, or it got the kind of traction that it did. That's disturbing. Maybe it's, listen, maybe it's just it's August and it's the silly season and there's not much news. But still, you, yeah, come on. I mean, if you're an editor of a newspaper and you want to be taken seriously, you also have to have a certain degree of integrity. I think there's two, there's a couple of things to mention here. One is, I go through most of them in the piece I wrote in this, which I will link below the podcast. The first is that none of them mentioned that the far-right observatory were were involved in some way with this research, which is interesting because the FRO have had relatively friendly relationships with a decent array of Irish journalists, not exclusively, but in the Irish Times and the Indo, um, certainly. So none of them mentioned that they were involved in some way. And the other thing that uh, is worth mentioning is neither the Irish Times nor the Independent reached out to any of the people on this list. Now, it's possible they, re- I, I, you know, I said Annie, but I should, I should rephrase that. Every group or person mentioned on this list who I have reached out to has said the Irish Times and the Independent did not reach out to them. Maybe they reached out to, to, maybe they reached out to certain ones. And, you know, I can't say for certain because I haven't talked to everyone, but all of the people I've talked to have said there was no attempt to give them a chance to defend themselves, to give any explanation. They were just smeared. Um, particularly, I mean, particularly in cases, Michael, where there were people who would be known to people in the Irish Times, the Independent, and where, I mean, they would have had their phone numbers. It would not have been difficult. Intimately known to them. No, it would not have been difficult. In fact, they could have turned around. Anyway, all we, we need to say is it would have been very easy for them indeed to find out. It's actually been a bumper week for reports into the far right in Ireland. Yeah, you're saying there was another, another one came out. Yeah, I think there were three of them. There was this one. There was the one I mentioned in the uh, journal about the the far-right GoFundMes. Important to point out there as well, while the journal says that these GoFundMes were far-right and does not put it in quotes, they're basing that entirely on statements by the far-right observatory and they don't name the campaigns in the piece. Now, there's enough information there that I feel you could find these pieces pretty easily. But there seems to be a certain willingness to just say things uh, without actually pointing out that we we are going to present no proof that this is actually the case, but we're just going to present it as if it's an objective fact rather than a claim coming from a particular group, which much like the SPLC and much like um, the, the global hate and extremism thing has a financial incentive to build up the public perception of the far right. So there was that one. And then there was another one which came from Maynooth and which the far right observatory were also involved in. And this one went up on um, uh, Brainstorm, which is RTE's online uh, thing for uh, academics. I would link to a story I did below on Brainstorm where RTE told the universities that were involved with it that they didn't need to pay VATNIT. RTE piece comes from Maynooth. It comes from a, a thing called the Stop Fair Right Project. They've done a couple of things. They did a series of seminars, some of which involved the Fair Right Observatory, which I watched um, because you, know, you want to know what they're talking about. And 
Also, they have a very great fondness for bringing up Gript occasionally. And you always want to see what they're saying, because eventually one of them will go too far. Why all this stuff, Gary? Is it just a question that this does good business? That when you come to the end of your agenda, when you've gone through the 60s and the 70s and all the great issues of the civil rights and campaigns have fundamentally been met and we're just there are no great causes left to fight is it just that you have to justify yourself if you were one of these uh, left progressive groups that you have to find business to do because otherwise what are you going to do close up shop and say well there's nothing for us here i think on, on one hand this is where the funding is like if you want to get funding the far right is definitely a richer seam to mine than say looking at far left violence or anarchist violence or something like that so it draws researchers to it for that purpose. If you were asking kind of more broadly why I think that's happening, I think there was a feeling a couple of years ago that we had reached sort of an end of history point, that all that was left for certain political forces was was victory, was just they'd gotten most of the victory and now it was just a slow encroachment to get the last bits of it and then they would win forever. And that's kind of fallen apart in many places in the last year. And that's led to a amount of, I would say, panic and distaste for those who've caused it to fail and also internal calls for explanations as to how it failed. And certain explanations are psychologically easier to bear than others. So for instance, if your political project failed because people decided it was either extreme or unworkable, or that they simply didn't like it, that would mean you've been rejected by the population at large. If, however, your political project fails in certain areas because there's a hardcore or growing threat of the far right and they're subverting democracy, well, you know, that means, Michael, that not only are you right, but it's important that you become more militant in your views because you've got to cut these people out like a cancer. Right, yeah. So I I think there is a movement amongst uh, certain intellectual parts of the left towards this to explain their own failures. Uh, and that may just, you know, I am basing that not, Michael, on any great amount of research, but just on my own interactions with people and my own views. And I am probably highly biased so take it uh, in that line. I mean, part of it may also be that a lot of these people, particularly the academics and the activists, have no conception of what the far right actually is. You're seeing these weirdly broad definitions where they can group people who would, on most cases, be extremely socially left or fiscally left, but disagree with them on key issues as far right, like the LGB alliance. They disagree with them on the issue of transgenderism. Therefore, they are far right. And sometimes that is just a bad faith attack. It's used to delegitimize. But a surprising amount of the time, it's because a lot of the academics and activists, and you see this when you deal with them personally, have no real conception of the far right other than it is their opposition. So anything that opposes them is the far right. I think there may be an element, and this is from my odd interactions with a few of the, these people, is they live at, at times, or the, they live politically within a fairly closed universe. And we, all of us tend to, when we, if we allow ourselves to become exclusively influenced by people with similar opinions to ourselves, that they just become reinforced and reinforced to the point that this is just normality. What you believe, what you think is just what all normal right thinking decent people believe and therefore everything that is outside of that obviously is problematic and then the further away then if it, it becomes 
not just wrong, but extremist. And they may not be themselves aware that actually a lot of the opinions they for would be perceived by a lot of people, shall we say, in the centre as being themselves on the far. In this case, you may say, we might say the far left or the far progressive left. And they're on, they're simply unaware that they, at where they exist themselves on the political axis from left to right. Because when you live in that world and you the interactions you have reinforce your sense of the ordinary commonplace nature of your beliefs that things that any belief which is really quite a distance away from yours must inevitably be perceived as being something like far right or fascist or neo nazi or something like that it's it's something you see particularly in foreign relations where uh, let's take russia because russia is in the news you would often talk to people in quite high-ranking foreign policy roles and who were considered to be you know, experts in the field and just people of respect, basically. And you would talk to them about Russia and you'd get a sense when you talk to them because they'd start saying things about uh, you know, the deep internal unpopularity of Putin's regime. And to a sense, you, you can talk about that. But the way they talk about it and the way, the extent to which they think it's there, it becomes really apparent that they are talking and looking not at Russians as a whole, they are dealing with Russian expats who are telling them things about the country. And they don't realise that expats are a demographically distinct group most of the time. And so they, they, they don't realise that they're coming to these arguments that don't actually really make sense based on the population, because they don't realise that they're getting information from sources that don't reflect the population. And we know, the research is pretty solid, that people on the left are more likely than people on the right to cut off a friendship or a relationship because you disagree with them on political matters. Now, I would say a lot of that is because in many cases, the left, at least culturally, is the dominant force. So it's easier to do that. And I'd be interested to see if the right was the dominant cultural force, would right-wing people be more likely to, to cut off contact? Because I think there is an element of that, that. There's an element of just practicality in it. But even amongst that, progressives are much, much more likely to cut people out of their social circle, to, to drop contact with them based on political views. And that has to have an impact on their ability to understand their own policies. I mean, you saw it during the abortion referendum with the um, with the repeal shield, which just, they said it was to block abuse, but they blocked pretty much anyone actively involved in the debate. And I think a large part of the reason was to make sure that people on their side couldn't see the arguments. They, there was a worry that they might become exposed and in some sense exposed to infection. Yeah, and then if people ask about it, you just say, oh, well, those are people who are, they're harassing people, they're assaulting people, they're, you know, they're scum, basically, and we're protecting you from them. Where having seen the people on the list, there were other people I saw on it who definitely had never said an unkind word. I, I think there is an element of strategy to it because I saw this happening in vividly in front of my eyes. I saw this happening in the marriage referendum where a year or a year and a half out for the referendum, there were people who would be happily, would happily engage in a debate or a discussion about it. And you could agree or disagree and you'd get the end of it. And it was, you know, what we'll agree to disagree. It, once you got like four or five months out, there was a sea change, Gary, an absolute palpable sea change in the sense of what was an acceptable opinion within shall we say, what is loosely called the community and if you wanted to maintain relationships within the community and to be able to go out to a bar and you wanted to go to Neelands or to you wanted to be able to go to the George you just didn't talk about it you didn't people might whisper in your ear something that they you know well actually I don't think x or y is a, a good idea but people stopped talking about it and people who a year before had said to me 
explicitly. I couldn't give a flying fuck about this issue. I don't care. It's not an issue for me. What you got three, four months out from the actual referendum? They were cutting, literally excising people from their social network because they didn't have the opinion, which was the right opinion. Uh, it felt to, it, that felt like a, a, a cons- consequence uh, of a strategic move made by the people. Or, or that, that there was a sense that this is what you had to do. And I think if you want to sort of be a little more sort of abstract about it, this is maybe the inevitable consequence of the idea that we used to believe in the world like that the moral and the political my moral world my moral mode of being my political mode of being were separate things and you could div- you, you you could have discrete areas in, within your life but it's been part certainly in the 20th century developed the idea of the personal as political and the progressive sees everything ultimately as political gender relationships relationships between men and women all economic relations, all of these things are ultimately political. So there is actually no space in there where you can say, well, we will agree to disagree. Everything is politicized. And conservatives are less likely to do it, but it's not unlikely. I mean, one of the really disturbing things we've seen in social research in the United States, starting from 1960 and going up to the present day, when you ask people questions like, would you be happy to have somebody who, a next-door neighbour who was a a, Republican or a Democrat, depending on the politics of the person, would you be happy, would you marry a Republican or Democrat? How would you feel if your daughter or your son were to marry? In 1960, people were very pretty relaxed about it. In fact, would, would have outside of certain areas would have been fairly confused about the idea that you wouldn't be friendly with a co-worker or, or you might you wouldn't have a you would have a problem with a family member having a different politics to yours. That was politics. They were, but that polarization has really deepened in the United States, and I think it's happening to a degree in Europe as well. And it ain't a good thing. It is not a good thing. But anyway. Just actually one, one aside that I think is, is amusing. The Stop Fire Right Project is funded by the Irish Research Council's new foundation program, but it's also in association with CrossCare's Migrant Project. Now, I believe it was the Stop Fire Right Project where they had the seminar, or, or they released material anyway, which was talking about one of the key signs of the far right was uh, a, focus, a focus on the family, which amuses me deeply, considering that CrossCare appear to be paying for part of it. And for those who aren't familiar, CrossCare is a uh, Catholic Church program. So the Catholic Church program is paying for something which is saying that a key part of the far right is a key pillar of the church's own beliefs, which just seems kind of you know, silly. They're, they're saying that a concern with family could be simply... Our belief that the family is, you know, the core of the state or the building block of the state is a key part of the far right. With the state, no, not to be... With the state and our society? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's symptomatic. There you go. Yes, and the church is paying for this. That's fantastic. No one apparently saw the report and went, is that not... Is that not what we believe, though? Yeah, and, and, a, and, a, and a lot of other people, too. Now, so... I just want to touch briefly on on the report because there's two things I want to identify with it. So the report basically said that um, all of the NGO organizations they dealt with have experienced online harassment or threats. They picked out 130 Irish NGOs and community groups and then reached out to all of them. 42 of them responded to it, so that's a 31% response rate. The idea of what the actual acceptable response rate for a survey, Michael, is hotly contested. Um, and there are there are a ton of different um, views on it. My own view is that for something like this, where you can identify all the groups individually, and there's a low enough number where you could physically 
physically chase it up if you wanted to, uh, and where there's no real reason for the groups not to respond to you at some point. I'd probably like to see a response rate of over 80%, so substantially above them. So the problem there is is what's called response bias, where if you ask a question, only certain uh, only a certain type of person um, will respond to it. The general example of this that's given is if you reached out to a load of um, business uh, types, managers, and asked them how busy they were in an average day, the people who will respond to you are the least busy for the most part because they have the most time to devote to answering you. If you then take that response and say that's the average time that managers uh, take their answers as representative, they're not. They're wildly out of whack. The problem here is that when you start seeing things like 100% of respondents have seen online harassment of threats, that's a weird number. It's very rare you get 100% on anything. So that would indicate to me that the groups that did respond may not be similar to the groups that didn't. But putting that aside, the reason that they are dealing with this, these NGOs, and this is an assumption that is widely accepted but never really talked about, is the idea that NGOs are representative of the population and can inform you accurately about that population and share the views of that population. So you give the National Women's Council of Ireland airspace because they represent the views of women. Pave Point because they represent the views of travellers. And I would argue that in Ireland particularly, whatever it may have been historically, it is now not the case that these organisations by and large accurately reflect the interest and views of the groups they claim to represent. But we generally assume they do because... Largely, it's about respectability. If people appear respectable and they appear professional and they say they represent a group, you don't really ask them to prove that. You just kind of assume they do. It's in the it's in the title, Gary. It must be true. It's the National Council of Women it says so right there on the tin. Yeah, although I mean, there was that unfortunate letter they signed, I think, last year, where they called for gender critical women to be stripped of legitimate political representation. So you know, yeah. maybe. National Council of some women. I don't know, I think we've seen a widening gap between the policies and views of NGOs and the populations they claim to represent. Because NGOs have become consumed with having a position on every potential issue. That it's you know, it's not enough that you have positions on the issues which are most key to you. You must also have views on the far right or the state of democracy. And at no point do we tend to go, you are a housing charity in Dorsey. Why do you care? Why are you even thinking about this? Yeah, but there is the opportunity then for lots of them to all get together and sign letters to the Irish Times on whatever happens to be the cause celeb of the day. I mean, Pavi Point, for example. Pavi Point took a position on gay marriage. Pavi Point took a position on abortion. Quite precisely why these an organisation which is an advocacy for travellers' rights in Ireland should be taking that position. Well, I mean, you can argue about it, but it's not on the face of it obvious. It's also not on the face of it obvious that in those cases they were actually representing the views and values of travellers in Ireland. In fact, it, would, it was the opinion of many travellers that I spoke to, they were in fact representing a very, very much a minority view of travellers uh, in Ireland. These organisations very rarely poll their own members. So they just, you know, Michael, they feel the spirit moves through them and they make it flesh. But they don't tend to actually ask the people they claim to represent, do you have a view on this? They just assume 
because they have a view, well, you know, the others must yeah, as well. The Women's Council has a position, for example, on women in, trans women in sport, um, trans men in sport. I would be curious to know to what extent that represents the broadly held view of the women of Ireland. I think, in general, NGOs have forgotten the distinction between, let's take students, student councils, the USI. Student issues and issues which may impact on students. It's actually a very important definition for an NGO because the first definition are the things you focus on. They are the things of prominent interest to you. The other things are effectively every other thing in the world because you can make an argument on nearly every policy that any particular group is going to be impacted by it. And so you have the student unions devoting time to projects. One would simply say, is that the purview of a student union to actually be doing? There are organisations that do that. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that it's that there's a moral quality to it as well, that students take moral positions as a way of alerting people to issues. For example, when I was a student, the Students' Union in my college took what I thought was the very courageous and laudable decision not to invite Paul Simon ever to play in the Students' Union bar because he had uh, played in South Africa. And, you know, that, that, was, that was a tough decision for a Students' Union to make in Ireland at the time because Paul Simon was very popular. But they said, no, he will not be invited or allowed to play in the Students' Union menu. So, you know, sometimes these things have to be done, Gary. Mm. Is Paul Simon's dead now? Neither he nor Art Garfunkel are yet dead, I believe. They're still out there and probably due for a reunion tour any day now. Actually, just to end with Michael, there's a um, there's a quote in the um, in the journal article coming from the Far Right Observatory that I thought was was quite amusing. Because they're talking about the GoFundMe and why it's got it removed. And you've got to keep in mind, Michael, that these are people accepting funding from the state for their work. Like, these are paid up. And you, no, you don't want to think about that, Gary, because if you start thinking about that, it will make you so angry that the stomach acid will eat your heart. But anyway, here's the quote. Without constant new content, donations dry up. And without the donations, many far-right influence find they, influencers find they have to get real jobs. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. Yeah, what is the phrase? One brief moment away from yeah. self-awareness. Only one short step to self, self, to a little bit of insight there and self-awareness, yeah. Oh, that's good. That is top class. <laughs> anyway, we will not be back. We will not be back on Sunday because I will be doing my 200 to 220 kilometer hike. There seems to be no agreement on how long it actually is, which is... Probably not a great sign. So I should just be gone the one Sunday and it'll take like nine to 11 days to complete. So I should be back for the second Sunday. And Michael, I suppose if things get desperate enough, we can just record a podcast on the EVI's research calendar for Q3 22 to Q2 23. I have no idea what that means, but I'll say yes, Gary, we can do that. The references to the um, the references to the seasonal calendar, Michael. Yes, yes, I, I I got that, but I don't know why. Anyway, wasn't sure what you were confused by. Really, it's just a date. Stop, please stop. <laughs> anyway, so we're we're not back next week. We're back the week after. Is that what we're saying? Yes. No, you are you are. We're not back next week. You can take as much drugs as you like. Anyway, mind yourselves and we will be back the week Sunday after next. Bye-bye. All the best.